0: In this episode, we're talking about competency-based teaching and grading. I'm joined by Ursula Askins Huber, a Spanish teacher in New Hampshire, who shares her journey with implementing competency-based grading, and she offers recommendations for transitioning to this approach to grading. So let's jump in. Hello my friends, bonjour mes amis, hola mis amigos, welcome to the World Language Classroom Podcast. I am Joshua Cabral and as always I just want to say thank you for taking the time out of your week to think about your teaching, listen to what's happening out there with other teachers so that you bring it back into your classroom and your students are incredibly lucky to have you. Real quickly, before we jump into today's topic, look down at your phone real quickly. Make sure that you press subscribe or follow. So many apps are asking you to do different things, but just make sure that you're doing whatever it is they're asking so that you get these new episodes every Monday as they come out that go right to your phone so you don't have to go searching for them. You know, there's certain topics out there in language teaching that tend to be I don't know if I really want to talk about that, or do we have to talk about that? You know, like, oh, let's talk about grammar. People, they're going to split up in the room. They're going to talk about it in different ways. Another one of those things that comes up is grading. You know, but I have to grade this way, or my expectation is I have to grade that way, or this is how I've always done it. So I wanted to grapple with (laughs) this topic because I think it's on the minds of a lot of teachers. I am joined today. I'm very lucky to have the wonderful Ursula Askins Huber here. And she is a Spanish teacher in New Hampshire. And she's been at this for over 30 years. So this is a teacher who knows what she is talking about. And she teaches in a school where she's actually the only Spanish teacher. So she's teaching levels like one through AP. So she is not just doing this competency-based grading stuff that we're going to talk about. She's doing it at every level. And I saw her workshop on competency-based teaching and grading. And so I said, okay, I need to reach out and we need to have a conversation about this so everybody can have the wonderful experience that I did. So that being said, hello, Ursula, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Joshua. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I kind of gave the, uh, the the quick rundown of who you are, what you teach, and where you are. Uh, is there anything else about your teaching journey that maybe you can fill in so we understand a little more?
1: I think it's important before we jump into competency-based assessment for people to understand that I also had to transform the way I taught or take a look at the way I taught and graded myself. So if people are considering or or are being told that they have to use competency-based grading, I went through that process. I know it can be challenging. It can be daunting. But I'm here to reassure everybody that it's not as scary or as awful as you think it might be. And it's definitely not reinventing the wheel.
0: I'm curious, you know, you've been at this for 30 years, you know, teaching language for 30 years. And what sort of draws you to teaching? Like, why, why, why after 10 years did you say, yeah, I'll keep doing this? And then after 25 years?
1: I think it was my second or third day of kindergarten, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. I just thought, wow, that is the coolest thing. I can help people all day long. I can make them functional and i i can help them and make them feel good about themselves and i can get paid for it and actually i started my teaching journey in uh teaching ESOL back then it was just ESL and it turned out when i graduated from college there just weren't those jobs available we had a lot of people that had not retired yet that are now retiring and there weren't a lot of spaces so i started looking around and i found you know a way to apply my world language abilities teaching foreign language. And I love it. I think it's the best job in the building. I mean, if I could teach it in a greenhouse, that would be perfect, like, because I could have sun all day too. But really, I think we are very lucky to be teaching languages.
0: Absolutely. I would, I would, I completely agree with that. I love getting up every day and being able to do this and having conversations and having colleagues that love it as well is... Absolutely wonderful. So now, are you ready to jump into this grading conversation? Sure. I always like to take a little bit of a step back and look at where we came from or where we're coming from before we look forward, just so we are all sort of on the same page. And when we look at traditional grading, you know, a traditional, you know, A, B, C, D, maybe F, you know, or percentages and all that, what was that? traditionally representing in a classroom.
1: So it's it's funny you should say that, because for those of us who are still doing that kind of grading, or for those of us who have transitioned from that kind of grading, you know, the grade book was sort of a mystery when I was a kid. I just knew if I had an A or a B or an A minus, and I really didn't know how that grade got calculated. So it would be a combination of something like tests, quizzes, maybe projects. Attendance sometimes was part of the grade. And then, of course, there was always the vague participation grade that you would get at the end of the quarter and not understand how you, you know, your grade went down or up based on participation. I especially have an issue with the participation grade because I feel like a lot of people sort of eyeball the student and go, oh, well, he got an A for participation. Maybe because the student happened to be speaking over the last couple of weeks, may not have spoken or shared very much at the beginning so that that one was a bugaboo of mine but you know i think lots of times we ended up sort of giving bonus points for behavior and and things like that that weren't necessarily tied into whether the children had knowledge of the topic and um, that is one of the cures that competency-based assessment sort of provides.
0: Yeah the uh, those compliance pieces that ended up being part of the grade kind of those nebulous pieces yeah. right. So then uh, we sort of have ushered in this idea of competency-based and I'm thinking also of the word proficiency based uh, as is that? one in the same for you? Sure. I, I think that that works fine. The reason
1: that we tend to use competency-based is because when we think about whether a student is ready to move on to the next level, we have to assume they're at least competent. <laughs> they might not be proficient. Proficient's a little bit mm-hmm. higher than competent okay. in the way I look okay. at it. But if we're saying proficiency-based, we're looking for a level of proficiency. Of course, that's that's almost interchangeable. But I think the reason that competency-based language is the one that we're using is because the perception is that that's the minimum, at least, that kids should have before they move on.
0: So not necessarily you're only assessing the minimum, but it's sort of the, it's the benchmark, right? When we use the word minimum. It is. So now if we dive into this competency-based grading, what is it that you're doing in your classroom when you call it competency-based grading.
1: Sure. And I think this is the thing that everybody panics about. They hear about competency-based grading and they think it's some crazy thing. I honestly think that languages is in a unique position to really benefit from competency-based assessment. It is not hard for us to come up with the skills that we want our kids to have before they move on to the next level. Generally, people divide up competency-based assessment into categories basic, broad skills that you would expect students to have. So in, um, for example, in social studies, it might be understanding the American dream, but it might not be. It might be understanding how countries work together. But for us in languages, we have some clear things what we want kids to be able to do. We want them to be able to speak the target language. We want them to be able to read and understand the target language. We want them to be able to write clearly in the target language. We want them to be able to listen with understanding. We want them to be able to understand cultures. So we have these things that we want kids to be able to do. And it's kind of easy for us to divide up our work or take a look at our work and say, okay, these are the competencies. These are the skills that we want our students to be able to have and to be able to grade solely based on their abilities in those areas.
0: So when you're breaking it down into those different areas, are you sort of looking at the the modes? So like the interpersonal mode and the presentational mode and trying to touch on each of those as much as possible when you're looking at grading?
1: Of course. I, I think different schools and different communities of teachers are going to approach competency-based assessment in different ways. You know, my school goes by those five skills that I mentioned, sort of reading, writing, listening, speaking, and culture. Some schools prefer to just go with the modes and use the interpersonal interpretive and presentational modes and those would be the competencies that we 're looking for. Some schools or administrators or teachers prefer to go with the five cs from actful communication communities etc and so there's no one right way to choose your competencies. You have to choose what's right for your community and your school and your students and the way that your community is used to teaching this material.
0: When you're grading in this sort of system, say you're doing a unit, let's bring it to the unit level. It's a Mm -hmm. week and a half, two-week unit, and you are assessing competency in these different areas, like you said, the reading, writing, culture. Are you giving a different... Grade for each of those categories, or do you give a holistic grade for all of them together?
1: Okay, so again, there are multiple acceptable approaches. There's, uh, I loved, I had a pediatrician once that told me when I was panicked about my kids that there are many roads to health, and so I feel the same way about competency-based assessment. There's no one perfect way to do it, and it's it's okay lots of people are very um, excited to use IPAs, for example, which are integrated performance assessments. And that might mean that there is both speaking and writing involved in a project or uh, an activity that you're doing with your students. And so, you know, your grades might be based on two different skills, but it might be on one. You might say, okay, well, their writing and speaking, those are both presentational mode. And so you would use one grade for that. Or you could say, oh, well, I'm going to assess their speaking separately from their writing. And you could say, okay, well, that could break into two right. grades. That's It's up to you how that works. One of the important pieces, I think, for people to understand about the assessments is that we have formative assessments and summative assessments. And so we have the assessments that are sort of practice assessments and we don't have to grade everything. You know, I think a lot of people get bogged down in the grading and and why are we grading so much? I mean, it's so much more work for us and it's so much more work for the kids and the kids get this anxiety about grading, but not everything that's important In the old system, got graded. But I feel like now we really grade the things that matter more. So in in my case, I I do formative assessments with my students literally every day. And so do you. And so do most teachers that are listening today. If you speak to a student and he responds, you're assessing that student. That student is you're saying, okay, well, now I know that the student understood what I said. And can respond appropriately or uh oh, this student didn't understand what I said. Maybe I need to go back and, and help that student understand better, or maybe I can pull the resources from the rest of the class and get the kids to help him remember what the, the situation is that he needs to understand. Those are really
0: important. So specifically in your 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 classrooms in your daily teaching, what does a competency based grade actually look like? Is it a number? What is that number? Is it one to five? Is it 80 to 100? Is it a letter? What does that actually look like?
1: So again, it can be a variety of things. The most pure, the people that really believe in competency-based assessment at the most pure core, usually choose a scale of one to four or one to five. So the one to five kind of comes from the AP model because that's something that's very familiar to people. And the students would literally get the grade from one to five. Three and higher would be passing, just like the AP exam. Or if it's one to four, uh, three and four are passing. And two, anything below three would be not yet competent. It's the power of yet, right? Those kids can still learn it. Maybe they get to retake an assessment or show you an alternate way that they have acquired this ability that you're hoping that they have. And that's how it's done, right? Um, the if you have a five point GPA system or a four point GPA system, this actually works out very well. But what I've found is most of the schools with which I have experience is that people are a little nervous about that one to four or one to five scale, and primarily, I think that that comes actually from parents. Right? Parents don't like stuff that isn't familiar to them. They get very nervous and wonder. All kinds of crazy things like, do colleges know what's going on? They're not going to know what to do. Of course, colleges know what's going on and they do know what to do. But I think parents want to see something that's familiar that they can relate to. And so I have a lot of schools that are sort of in a hybrid system, which is they might have scoring guidelines or scoring rubrics that are scaled one to four or one to five, but the grade gets converted into a grade from one to a hundred. And typically, when we're thinking about competency-based assessments, we want our kids to at least have a 70 out of 100 if we're doing the 100 scale, because a 60% level of understanding is not deep understanding. And that's what really the kids need to have in order to be competent, is to have a real real sense of what's going on.
0: So in, the, in your school system, do you have to report out A letter grade? Or are you able to actually report out these competency-based assessment grades?
1: So in my particular school where I'm working right now, we actually use the one to 100 scale and the students get a number grade. So if my kids are doing well, I mean, most of my kids when we're we're doing well, I feel pretty great if they're getting fours, but it might not look that great on a on a scale, <laughs> on the scale of numbers, right? It's like, okay, great. So they, they have 16 out of 20. That's only an 80. I'm, I i do not see a problem with that, but I, I always feel great if my kids are getting fours. But then when I, I go down to threes, then, you know, it becomes a three is passing, but it becomes a 60.
0: So are you converting your grades like, how does that conversion work? So say, do you use a one through four scale, did you say?
1: We use a one through five scale. One through yeah. five scale.
0: Yeah. So if a student has an average of a four, mm-hmm. do you sort of have your numerical equivalent <laughs> on the one to 100 scale that you use? Because I think yes. these are the questions that teachers are going to be yes. thinking about. Like, I want to do this. I want to do this competency right. one four, one through five, but I still have to give like a B plus. Or so how do you, how do you work that?
1: So um, I don't worry about it as much as with the fours as I do with the threes, because I do feel like when a student has a three, they're not showing me that they're 60% competent. They're showing me that they're 70% competent. I mean, I'm sort of picking numbers out of the air, but for me, that's that's what means that to me that they are ready to move on to the next level. It's very rare that I get kids that end up with 60s, but yes, sometimes I will talk to the student and give them an opportunity to fix it, even if it's a summative grade, so that they can demonstrate that their their score is a little higher. Honestly, I feel like the one through four scale is much more friendly with a one to 100 hybrid, because if you end up with all fours, the the lowest grade you're going to get is... It's, it, the range in the fours is like from 70 to, right. or 75 mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. 90 or something like that. So the the scale works much better if it's a one through four system. The only reason we are sticking with the one through five at my current school is because we have a lot of AP classes, and I think it it's very familiar to parents and administration.
0: So you're using, I'm assuming, rubrics that are yes. like sort of very have very clear definitions of what each of these is going to get. So Mm -hmm. could you just, you know, talk to us a little bit about how your rubrics are set up and do you have them for different classes or are they sort of general?
1: So it's funny because when we talk about rubrics and, and it's funny because back in the day when we were all using textbooks all the time, Um, Sometimes they would give us little model rubrics and they used to crack me up because a lot of them didn't have anything to do with whether the student understood what they were doing. It was like, is colored well, you know, or whatever. (laughs) So the first step to creating rubrics, well, first, first, I'd like to say I'm a big fan of general rubrics and they change a little bit at each level. So my Spanish one rubrics are not the same as my Spanish four rubrics. They're different because my expectation for the students are different at those levels. But I do create generalized rubrics that I can then add details about an assignment or a project that I'm giving. So the first step is to decide what is competent, what is good enough for your students to move on in speaking, for example, speaking with clarity. So I sit with, and I have sat with, I'm not sitting now because I'm the only person in the Spanish department, but I've sat with my colleagues and and we sit there and we debate and discuss because as you know, we're a passionate group. We really care about these minutiae because we want to make sure our kids are doing well and we want to make sure that we're assessing them properly. And so we have to sit down and figure out, well, what are the pieces of speaking that are important to us? and. For a lot of us, that's grammar. And so usually there's a piece on the rubric that says that the student's structures and syntax are really highly accurate or that they're even maybe trying something that they just barely learned. And maybe they're not perfectly accurate, but they're really good. You know, they're making a few errors, but so what? That might be superior, but competent might be they're using everything that we've taught them. We're using them properly. That's great. With a few errors. I always point out to the students when we look at the rubrics at the beginning of the year, do you have to be perfect to get a five? And they'll look at the rubric because they're sure they do until they look at the rubric and they go, oh, no, I don't. It's like, right. Yeah. Because, you know, in language, I mean, the, the important thing for us is that our students use their language. They go out into the world and they use the language and they can communicate. And it's not, it's not so important that they, they remember the personal ah, uh, as long as they can communicate. And we do to get bogged down on those. I still will mark the paper and let kids know that these things need to be fixed. But I, I won't, if they only have a couple of small errors, and they communicate really clearly, they can still earn a five for structures and syntax. And maybe so for speaking, we have structures and syntax on my rubrics, vocabulary use, You know, whether they're pushing themselves in vocabulary, if they're just sticking to safe things like, you know, my family is tall or whatever. And then we have, you know, are they organized when they're speaking? Are are they, are they speaking in a manner that makes sense? Is their fluency okay? You know, are they speaking fast at one point and then stopping because they paralyzed themselves? Or are they speaking at a nice, clear pace? Are they pronouncing things properly? Are they Americanizing their pronunciation? And maybe... The, the one that I like the best is, that I have on my rubric is speaks in the style of Spanish. And that helps us with those great things that kids like to say, where they try to translate some idiomatic expression into Spanish and it comes out very funny. So I always say, does not force me to know English, to know understand what you're saying. <laughs> does not force interpretation is the way we put it. And then the bottom part is usually meets the requirements, so that's that's one of the great things about a generalized rubric is then I have them write on the back of the rubric what the requirements are oh I have to you know I have to write five sentences about my first period class or whatever you get a rough draft and a final copy, and the final copy is due on this day and I can use dictionaries, but not Google Translator or whatever the requirements are.
0: I appreciate the fact that you mentioned that accuracy piece on the rubric because i think with a lot of times when teachers are thinking about proficiency based grading, grading or proficiency in general that it means communicating and we're not focused on the accuracy and while you need a certain level of accuracy to be understood you know and i that's yeah, that's and i true. like that you you're adding that in there specifically you know and that's a kind of a that, I think it's a relief for teachers to hear, like saying that, that oh, I can actually have that piece in there. Okay,
1: right. I, I think a lot of teachers, and, and I've I've worked at a number of schools, and I've I've had some teachers really panic that we don't have a separate competency area for grammar alone, and to explain that. We can include it in every single competency area helps a lot. I think you're right. I think it, it takes the pressure off because you're right. Accuracy is important and we want them to get better and be able to communicate more clearly, but it can't be the be all and end all of, of a whole you know, one fifth of their grade or whatever it is, it's going
0: to be. Uh, So one question I just it just popped into my head as you were talking is, have you had to do some form of sort of parent education about competency based grading? Because as you said at the beginning, it's usually the parents that have a fear about all of this. So how do you kind of get them on board?
1: So it it is funny because I've gone through two schools where competency-based assessment was being rolled out. So I've worked in two separate schools during the rollout and both the kids and the parents really struggle with it because it's, it's brand new and they just worry. The kids worry because summative assessments tend to be worth way more than they used to mysteriously be worth. For example, at my current school, the summative assessments are 80% of a student grade and 10% is formative assessments and 10% is the final exam. So students get very stressed out about that 80%. Now, the way we do it in languages is we divide up that 80% into the competency areas, which I think works out to be 16% of the grade for each competency area. And then we say, and you get two summatives in each competency area. So that's 8% of your, like you have to, you have to sort of bring them down, like calm them down. But also one of the benefits of competency-based assessment is that students are inherently allowed to make up any assessments that they're not exceeding. in. so for example, if I gave a quiz yesterday, vocabulary, right? Vocabulary is definitely a formative assessment in my class because vocabulary is not a competency area. It is not presentational speaking or anything like that. It's just a piece that they need to know in order to successfully do that. So I gave the quiz and some of the kids did not do well because of various reasons out for COVID or, (laughs) you know we Were very tired because they had sports practice, refused to do the homework. And um, those are the kinds of things that this is sort of the logical consequence. They didn't do well. They didn't do well. It's not the end of the world. I always remind them when I am handing them the quiz, when they are first taking the quiz, if you don't feel like you're doing well today, should you panic? And they'll say, no, because we do this every time. And I say, why not? And they say, because we can retake it. And I'm like, right which is another reason you shouldn't try to talk to anyone or look at anyone else's paper, because if you do that, I'm taking that away <laughs> and you will not be able to make it up. You will just get the zero. So to reassure them that they have plenty of opportunity to improve is, is great for them and they feel better. I think in my case, I emphasize a lot about the formative assessments. And I think for students and parents, that's really important. Even in the most pure competency-based grading systems where they don't even count formative assessments. They only count summative assessments. It's reassuring for people to understand that that means that kids are getting a lot of practice before we have them do a major summative assessment. But yes, we've had to educate parents.
0: I'm looking at sort of the roadblocks that teachers will have as they're looking at this. And you actually, you kind of just answered this next question, but I was just thinking about what about homework completion and that grade and participation and that grade and everything and I guess what you're saying based on your explanation is that there's one thing to grade the homework and it's well Whether or not you have a grade on the homework or completed or not, it's going to inform what your ultimate competency is. So if you don't do the homework, rather than grading the homework as not done and it hurts your overall grade, it's actually just going to hurt your overall competency grade. And if you do the homework, you'll have a higher one. Am I getting that right? That is exactly right. I'm, I'm so excited to look at my rubrics again tomorrow morning after this conversation. It's one of the, oh, okay, how can I do this a little differently? And should I be on the one through four scale or the five? So thank you for all of those insights. And I would like to know where your inspiration continues to come from, you know, over 30 years in the classroom, and you still come off as incredibly excited to be teaching. So where is your inspiration coming from to do this work, whether particularly about competency-based grading or your teaching in general?
1: I still think kids are funny. Um, And I think even on the rough days, I know that there's still hope for kids. We can help them not just learn Spanish and have these wonderful experiences because they're learning a language. I don't know. I just like being part of uh, their formation as adults. And I love running into them later and finding out that they're just as awesome as I thought they were going to be.
0: So this is the part of our conversation where I like to pull the curtain back a little bit and get to know Ursula the person. Oh, no. (laughs) A little bit more. Okay. And it's uh, my my little game I like to call This or That. I'm going to give you two options. You choose one. And maybe tell us a little why, and just so we can learn a little bit more about you along the way. You ready to take this on? Sure. I love that you're (laughs) game. Okay. First question is, are you more town or country?
1: Oh, I'm definitely more country. Yes. I like being out here. I I live in the middle of the woods and I see bears in my yard all the time. I love it.
0: Wow. Okay. You see bears in your yard a lot. Bears, That's...
1: moose, turkeys. Yeah. It's it's great.
0: Okay. Country person. Indeed. So excellent. Okay. Now, uh, when it comes to seasons, are you a winter or summer person?
1: Ugh. <laughs> No, I mean, I like all the seasons. I mean, of course, I'm in New Hampshire, so I really want to say fall. But if you're going to make me choose, I mean, I like summer because there's so much flexibility. I like to garden. I like to go to the lake. I like to hike and all of that stuff. I am not a good skier, so winter doesn't hold as much uh, charm for me. Yes,
0: yeah, so you're just hanging out with the bears doing your gardening. That's awesome. <laughs> I love yeah. it. I'm, I'm learning so yes. much about about you. And this last one. Are you into new books and music or do you gravitate towards the classics?
1: I like all books and music. So I'll tell you right now I'm reading Hamilton because my daughter was a huge Hamilton fan for the the Broadway musical. And so I'm reading Hamilton, the biography now, and that's kind of new. And I read a book recently called The Other Black Girl, which was amazing and funny Uh, and uh, a little science fiction-y there at the end. So I'm always reading new stuff, but I have the classics that I go back to all the time. Music, I mean, I'm a huge Beatles fan, but I also really like the alternative music that comes out today. I like AJR is one of my big American groups that I really like. Um, And of course, I'm always looking for new music and literature for my kids. And so, you know, um, right now I'm on a Siete, a Puerto Rican singer I, I'm on a kick of his. I know he came out when his stuff was really popular, like 2006, but I feel like I just rediscovered that.
0: Well, I am. Uh, I am sure there are teachers listening to us right now that would really appreciate connecting with you uh, to you know, talk about the, the exciting possibilities when it comes to competency based grading. But you also just exude this joy in your teaching and, you know, it's just so accessible. That's why I said we have to have a conversation about this. After I was in your workshop, I said, you know, she just approaches this from such a a manageable way and I think it's, it's just going to speak to teachers. So I'm sure they're going to want to connect with you. So how could they do that?
1: Well, I mean, I am on Twitter because, you know, all the cool teachers are on Twitter, <laughs> right? <laughs> in the in the world language Twitter world. Um, and my my handle is USA School Marm because that's, that's my handle. They can also reach me at my school, which is Profile School in New Hampshire, if they want to uh, reach out to me there and we can start our conversation. And if we want, we'll move over to my personal email.
0: All righty. I'll definitely make sure that that is in the show notes so that teachers can reach out to you. So I have I have never had so much fun talking about grading, <laughs> I have to be honest with you. I'm sort of like, does the conversation have to end? I want to talk more about this. So thank you so much, not for just the knowledge you brought to it, but for doing it in such a manageable and accessible way that I think teachers will just absolutely love.
1: So there is a book that I read while I was transitioning to um, competency-based assessment, and it was called... Assessment for Student Learning, Doing It Right, Using It Well. And uh, it's by Rick Stiggins and Janice Chapuis. There's also another one called A Repair Kit for Grading, which sort of advises us not to give extra credit for bringing a can for the canned food drive um, and other things. And it's called A Repair Kit for Grading, 15 Fixes for Broken Grades by Ken O'Connor. So both of those, if you're considering a journey and you'd like a resource, Besides just listening to me, um, those, those two sources I found to be very
0: helpful. Thank you for uh, the, just knowing that, that that's where that inspiration for all of this came from for you. And then we can dive a little deeper in there. Um, so if you could just leave one little piece of advice with teachers that are thinking about taking on a new way of grading, uh, what would that be for them?
1: Take a deep breath <laughs> and think about what's best for your students and yourself before you dive in.
0: So awesome to hang out with you and we'll have to do it again soon. Thank you so much.
1: Sounds great. Thank you, Joshua.
0: What are your takeaways from that conversation with Ursula Askins-Huber? I particularly appreciated the comments around summative and formative assessment. Be sure to check out the show notes to connect with Ursula. You'll also see the link to sign up for Talking Points, my weekly email newsletter with tips and resources for language teaching. There are also links to get in touch with me if you would like to work together, either in person in your school or remotely. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the World Language Classroom podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Classroom. You can also see over 250 blog posts about language teaching at, you guessed it, WLClassroom.com.